Hi, everybody, and welcome to Wednesday night. Good to have you with me once again. And I'm so thankful for modern-day technology, where even though we can't meet in person right now, uh, we can meet this way. And I hope that you're blessed, and I hope you're ready to get into the Word and look at some of the questions that Jesus took the time to ask people like you and me. Now, let me remind you, Jesus never needed an answer from us. He, he knew the answer to every question. When Jesus asked a question, it was designed to do two things. Number one, to make us think about something that we had never thought about. To make us think about something that maybe in our whole lives had never occurred to us. And it always was designed to lead us closer to God, closer to Him, closer to salvation, um, closer to genuine truth. The second reason Jesus asked questions was to make a statement. Uh, in virtually every question Jesus asked, there is a message hidden in the question, um, a message in the question. And uh, so that's why we're looking at the questions that Jesus asked, because uh, we want to grab the message of the question. The message is in the question, because there is gold in every question Jesus asked. And before I get into it, let me just encourage you. I know that our nation is is really rocking and rolling right now and we're we're in a real tough spot and you all know, look around me and I look at the news and you know it, it's just uh, I've never seen America more divided more people angry more people upset more people confused than now and I, and let me just bring to your mind the psalm where David says look even if the mountains quake and the ocean blows up and, and overflows all the shores and the mountains disappear into the sea, we will not fear. Why? Because our God is an abundantly available help. And that's something I always try to remember. God's not way out there going, out, well, good luck, guys. You know, hope, I wish you the best. No, God is available and not just available, but the Hebrew language says, abundantly available. I mean, he's everywhere when you need him. So I want to encourage you to cast your cares upon the Lord. Be sure you pray about everything bothering you, everything troubling you. The Bible says in Psalms 55, 22, roll your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He'll never allow the righteous to be moved. Um, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, cast your cares upon the Lord he cares for you. Pray about everything. Don't have anxiety about anything, uh, but give all your cares to the Lord because he cares about you. So let's remember to do that in these tumultuous, turbulent times. And uh, let's stay, well, keep your nose in the Bible. Keep your knees bowed before Jesus in the place of prayer. He's going to get us through this. He's going to toughen us, strengthen us. And we're going to come out on the other side of this valley Um if we respond in faith, we're going to come out on the other side of this shining more than we ever have. I believe that. All right. You ready for the questions? Here they are. This is one of my favorite ones. It's, it's so simple on its face, but it brings a powerful question and a powerful message. Jesus said in Mark's gospel, chapter four, verse 21, grab your Bibles and open to that with me. Now, you know what I tell you about context? Bible study, one of the key golden rules of Bible study is a text without a context is a pretext. That is, you want to look at what comes before the verse you're focused on and what came after the verse you're focused on, okay? So, the verse, the question is in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. 
The context of this passage is found not just in Mark, but in all three Gospels. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the Synoptic Gospels, all right? S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, the Synoptic Gospels. It comes, of course, from the word synopsis. And what it means is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar to each other that you can hold them side by side and read the same accounts of the same stories and Matthew, Mark, and Luke will agree. Uh, they're, they're in harmony. We, another word for it is the harmony of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. They give a synopsis of the life and work, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ um, that can be held up and compared to each other side by side. So that's what we mean when we say the synoptic Gospels. And so, but the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sort of have a different target audience. So catch this, Matthew is writing mainly to a Jewish audience. He wants to prove to his Jewish target audience that Jesus is and the expected and prophesied Messiah that all the prophets foretold. He's showing that Jesus was that Messiah, all right? But Mark and Luke are written mainly to Gentile audiences. And let's keep in mind that Luke was a Gentile, all right? So uh, Matt, Mark and Luke are aiming at a more Gentile audience. So they talk about the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the actions of Jesus more than um, perhaps Matthew. So you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Now, then we come to John. John is very different. Now, he doesn't disagree with the first three in any way, shape, or form. He really is a complement to the first three. And we need to remember that Mark was probably, well, he, he was, it was the first gospel written. Mark wrote the first of the three, the four gospels. Then came um, Matthew and Luke and John. John was the last. John outlived all of his peers. He outlived his brethren. This is kind of makes me a little bit, I don't know, it must've been hard for him because his, his friends, those that had been with him, as they all together, the 12, followed Jesus for three and a half years. And um, they had that incredible camaraderie. They were discipled by the very son of God himself. But we know that when John wrote his gospel, Paul had been martyred, Peter had been martyred. They'd all been martyred. All 11 of the 12 had been martyred. Only John survived. John outlived the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He saw the temple destroyed. He saw all of that go down. And uh, now he's at, in his really old age. 90 something is how long John lived. So when he writes his gospel, uh, false doctrine and false teaching has begun to really infiltrate the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees this. He sees this on a level that Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude did not. And so John is real concerned about taking a stand for and clarifying who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, because that's what the false teachings were all about. They were tearing down the deity of Jesus, the um, exclusivity of Jesus, the one wayness of Jesus. They were tearing down that. The, God had actually come in flesh form. 
uh, and all kinds of things. That's, that's called Gnosticism, by the way. Gnosticism taught that Jesus w- was not with us in flesh form, only in spirit form. And so um, that's why you'll hear John saying, we, we touched him, uh, we saw him, we ate with him. Jesus was here in flesh form. And so John's gospel is a very unique gospel and you're gonna find him quoting Jesus and what Jesus said about himself. I'm the light of the world. I'm the salt of the earth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man that comes to the Father, no man can come to the Father but through me. John is quoting Jesus' words about himself more than any of the others because he is wanting to uphold and solidify who Jesus was and he's raising up a standard against the false teachers. Now that's some of the background to the book of John. Now, back to Jesus' question. We find that Matthew places Jesus' parable, Mark placed Jesus' parable right after talking about the parable of the sower. Mark puts the question that we quoted right after Jesus giving the parable of the sower. But Matthew puts Jesus' teaching, not in the form of a question, but in the form of a statement. And he puts it early on in the Sermon on the Mount. So he places it in a little bit of a different context, uh, but it's the same teaching. You don't light a candle and put it under a table. You put it on the tabletop so that everybody can see it. Luke uh, does the same thing. Luke places it after the parable of the sower. All right. So Mark and Luke place Jesus' statement um, about you don't light a candle, put it on under a table, you put it on top of the table so you can give light to all that are in the house. They put it right after his teaching on parable of the sower. Matthew puts it early on in the Sermon on the Mount. But either way, it's easy to see what Jesus was teaching. He's, he's making a common sense statement. We all know this. You don't light a candle. And then go, well, the candle's lit, so let me put it under a table where nobody can see it and where it can't light anything up. Well, that's obvious. Uh, It's not true. That's not what you do, all right? But Jesus used very simple illustrations to teach profound truths, okay? And what he's doing is he's using physical light to make an illustration about spiritual light. You see, he said to us, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Now, John quotes Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, speaking about himself. I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John quotes Jesus saying that about himself. But now Jesus being light, when we come to him, the light lights us up. We become lit. Jesus said, My life is the light of men. Now, we all know that when we come to Christ, we receive life, spiritual life. For the first time in our life, we receive life. And when we receive life, we receive light. Now, Jesus is like a great big candle who lights all of us. And then we're like little candles walking around and we're not supposed to be under a table. That's the point of Jesus' question. Do men light a candle and put it under a table? Well, of course not, Lord. You put it on tabletop. We need to see light. We want the darkness to go away. We want light to fill the room. 
And Jesus is saying, all right, I'm giving you a teaching to teach you a very important lesson. You've come to me, you believed on me. Now I don't want you to go hide. I don't want your Christianity to be hidden under a table. I want you to be upfront with it. I want you to be out there with it. I want you to be um, unashamed of me. I want you to get out there and let your light shine. Now it's interesting to me that Mark and Luke put Jesus' words about lighting a candle and don't put it under a table right after the parable of the sower. Now why? Well, in the parable of the sower, we have four different people receiving the gospel or at least hearing the gospel. The first one that hears it never gets saved. The next two that heard it receive the word, but for different reasons, they fail to bring forth fruit. One of them is hindered by persecution. When persecution arises, he doesn't have any roots and he falls away. The next one is choked out. His faith and fruitfulness are choked out um, by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So he doesn't bring forth fruit. Now, Jesus says there's only one guy left, and this is the guy that brings forth much fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. So there is that Christian that actually brings forth fruit. Now, right after talking about that one, Jesus says, no man lights a candle, does he? And hides it under a table, does he? No, but he puts it on a tabletop so that everybody can see it. Why would Jesus put that question right after talking about the man that bore, bore good fruit? Well, I believe it's clear. Jesus is putting that there. He's letting us know that's one of the things that the fruitful man did. He did not let his light be hidden. He was open about his faith, open about his walk with Christ, open, and he was letting his light shine. That's why Jesus had it there. So the bottom line is the answer to Jesus' question is, no, Jesus, we're not to light a candle. We're not to be lit Christians. We're not to get saved and receive the life of God into us and have our souls receive true life for the first time and then go hide. No, we're supposed to be out there letting our light shine. Jesus said, let your light shine so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That's the answer. And uh, boy, let's, let's really take that um, to heart tonight because uh, our culture out there is getting darker and darker church. And you know, it. that's not news to you. It's getting darker and darker and uh, more and more hostile to the gospel message and to Christians. So we're going to have to have a, a, a real kind of come to Jesus meeting about this. Are we going to hide the light, get under a table? Well, chances are, if we do that, we're not going to bring forth fruit. But are we going to be like the one who brought forth fruit and get on the tabletop and let everybody around us see the light? Let's not care what people think. Let's not care what men think. Let's don't look for the applause of men or the smile of men. I don't want the applause or the smile of men. Let's look for the smile of heaven. Let's look for the smile of Jesus. Let's try to please the Lord and let the world see the light. And as any light that shines into a dark room, because we're shining, it's a guarantee some darkness is going to be dispelled.
because we shine. Amen? All right. I love this. I love looking at these questions. Let's look at the next one. This is a really good one. This is one that maybe you've wondered about, and it's found in Mark's gospel as well. Uh, chapter nine, verse 50. So look at it in your Bibles and let's read the question. Jesus said, salt is good, but what if salt becomes flat? That's the question. Now, have you ever read that and wondered what Jesus meant? Uh, let me paraphrase it just a little bit. Salt is good, but what if salt becomes tasteless? It's no longer salty. Would you salt a piece of meat with tasteless salt? No, you wouldn't. You, you salt that meat with salt because you want that little zang, that little zing, that little flavor, that seasoning that salt gives to meat or anything else that you put salt on. All right, let's consider the question. Now, once again, this question from Jesus is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. You can hold up all three of them, and in all three of them, it's a question. They all put it in question form. Um, salt is good, but what if the salt becomes flat, tasteless, loses its seasoning, its ability to season something? What good is it? Well, Matthew places it in the Sermon on the Mount once again. Luke places it right after strong words from Jesus on the necessity of totally selling out to him in discipleship. Now, this matters. Where the question is placed really matters because Jesus said, look, be sure that you are totally following me in discipleship. Totally sold out to me. Because if you don't, if you're not, then you're in danger of losing your saltiness. All right? So it matters. The context. Remember a text without a context is a pretext. Let's look at what comes before it, and let's look at what comes after the question. Mark, on the other hand, places the question immediately following Jesus' words about the necessity of making a clean break from a sinful lifestyle even mixed with a little bit of warning of hell, all right? So you've got this question kind of found in, in three different settings, but it's the same question. And I believe the Holy Spirit had it placed that way because all three of the contexts matter when it comes to you and me staying salty for the kingdom of God. Now, what is the salt in Jesus' teaching? What does it illustrate? Well, I believe the salt illustrates, I believe it has a twofold application. Are you ready? Now watch this. First, we know that salt is a preservative. In the days before we had refrigeration, thank God we have refrigeration. Man, how often? Well, we never. We always take the refrigerator for granted. But you know what it was like before they discovered refrigerators? I think in the early 1800s, somewhere in there, refrigeration was discovered. But before then, and I'm not sure about that date, but I know it was quite some time ago. But in the days before refrigeration, the only way that you could keep meat from rotting and decaying was a process called curing, C-U-R-I-N-G. And curing was about the only way to save meat in warm weather months. Because when you poured salt on it, bacteria in the meat could not grow uh, and ruin the meat. So you cured it by putting salt all over it. Salt pre preserved it from rotting, 
from going bad in such a way that you couldn't eat it, okay? So I believe that here Jesus is telling us, first of all, that the church is a preservative. That when we are full of the kingdom of God, when we are salty, full of the power of the spirit, of the love of God, we're walking in his lordship, we're walking in a crucified lifestyle, we're living our lives for him in total discipleship. When we're that way, we're a preservative to a rotting, decaying culture. I believe the church, even though, yes, our culture is going dark. There's no doubt about it. It's going darker and darker all the time. But where would it be, where, where would it be if the church weren't here? What would America and the world look like right now if the church were gone, if we had been raptured? What would the culture look like? Remember Jesus said to the women weeping over his crucifixion, he said, don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem, but weep for your children and your children's children. Why? Because if they do these things to me during the green tree, what will they do when it's dry? If they're doing these things when I'm among you, what will they do when I'm gone? And it's the same principle. If our culture is going where it's going with the church here, where will it go when the church is raptured out? Well, we know where it'll go. Antichrist will take over and wickedness will come in like a flood. So we're a restrainer. When we walk with Christ, preach the word of God, love the world, share the gospel, worship him, stand for truth. We are preservers. We are salt preserving the culture from even worse decay. Now, the second meaning of salt is about the inner life of the believer, the inward life of you, your interior life, and mine. Jesus said, have salt in yourselves, in yourselves. Now, he's warning that if the Christian loses the salt of the kingdom within themselves, and how do you do that? If you lose heart, if you begin to love the world and drift away from prayer, drift from church, from the Bible, from um, obeying the Lord, you begin to walk in the flesh and party hardy and get out there and you look like the world, you act like the world, you talk like the world, your language goes south, you begin to drift from God, you get lukewarm, where Jesus said, I just soon spew you out of my mouth. I want you to be hot for me or cold for me, but don't be lukewarm, I can't stand it. Don't say that you're walking with me and then you live like you're not. That's lukewarm. I want you to be hot or cold. So if we begin to do that, then that's how we lose saltiness. That's how we lose our influence. That's how we lose our persuasiveness. Uh, that's how we fail as Christians, okay? To influence the culture. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith shall it be salted? Where can God put you? Why would God put you anywhere? Because, because if he drops you amongst a group of lost people or out there in some job or, or your, your neighbors or whatever to influence them, you're no influence because you've lost your saltiness. So Jesus said, where shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot of men and trampled. Wow. Another version puts it, it will be thrown out where people will just walk on it. Why would people walk on Christians that have lost their saltiness? I'll tell you why. 
Because when you lose your saltiness and you are no longer living for the one you say you believe in, then you look like a hypocrite. And one thing the world hates is hypocrisy. Now, they may not hate it amongst themselves because there's all kind of hypocrisy in the world. But if you take a stand for Christ and then hypocrisy is shown that your walk and your talk are two different things, there is a despising that happens in the eyes of the world. And so they throw you out and they step on you. They lose respect for you and they mock you. All right? So if you're going to be mocked for something, be mocked for being red hot. Don't be mocked for being hypocritical. Be mocked for being red hot. So the Lord seems to be saying that once a Christian goes worldly and loses their saltiness, it's hard to get back. It's hard to get it back. Now, it's not impossible, but it's hard to get it back. And the people you once witnessed to, they don't take you seriously anymore. Not your kids, not your in-laws, not your neighbors, your co-workers, nobody. They don't take you seriously anymore because they're seeing, you say you love him, but you don't live like it. You say he's yours and you're his, but there's no evidence. So stay salty with kingdom salt. If you say you're a Christian, let's give it everything we've got. Let's seek him every day, walk with him every day, love him every day, bow to him every day, um, and not be ashamed of him because our world is dying for the real thing. They want to see people that really do walk out their faith. All right. Great question. Thank you, Jesus, for a great, great one. And that's the answer. Now I've got one more and then we're done. This is one of my favorites. It's found in John's gospel. So we're stepping out of the synoptic gospels and we're going to John's gospel. Here it is. A question from Jesus straight to Peter. John 21, verse 22. John, Jesus says to Peter, what concern is it of yours? What if I want John to remain until I come? Now, you're probably wondering what the context is unless you know the story. Because it's a, it's, it's a, an interesting question from the mouth of our Lord. I love it. And I love the context where it took place because it's found only in John's gospel. It's found in none of the synoptics, only in John. And John is uh, telling us what happened after Jesus had been crucified and rose from the dead. Uh, the context is he appears to the disciples on the seashore. They've been fishing all night long and caught absolutely nothing. Uh, Jesus yells out to them, children, do you have any meat? But he knows the answer to the question. He knows they've been skunked. They haven't caught a thing all night long. But he asked them, and they realize by the question, they hear something in that question. They've heard it before. Because Jesus asked them something very similar in the very beginning of his ministry when he called them to follow him. So Peter realizes it's the Lord. He jumps in the water, swims to Jesus, and there we have the whole drama of Jesus asking Peter three times, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me, Simon? Do you love me? And Peter answering three times, you know that I love you, you know that I love you. And then the third time, Peter was grieved and said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then Jesus launches into a prophetic prediction to Peter about his future martyrdom. And he says, 
in verse 18 of John 21. And I'm reading this out of the Living Bible. He says, the truth is, when you were young, you tied your own belt and you went where you wanted. But Peter, when you're old, you'll be put out or you will put out your hands and someone else is going to tie your belt. In other words, they're going to tie your hands and they will lead you where you don't want to go. Now, the next verse, John tells us what that meant. Jesus said this to show how Peter would die to give glory to God. Then he said to Peter, follow me, follow me. Now, we know that Peter was martyred and church tradition and all historical accounts tell us Peter was hung upside down on a cross and that he actually asked for that, saying, I'm not worthy to be hung right side up like my Lord was. Now, whether or not that's tradition, I don't know, but I do know that Peter was martyred. And you can count on it as Jesus predicted that he would be martyred, that he would be tied somehow. And he was taken as a, as a bound man to the place of his martyrdom. You can, you can bank on it. That's exactly what happened. Now, after Jesus says this to Peter, Peter looks around and he looks right at John. And John is standing there sort of twiddling his thumbs and kind of looking around. And Peter wants to, wants to know, wait a minute. If I'm going to be martyred, what about him? What about him? What about John? <laughs> In other words, fair is fair here, Lord. Um, if I'm going to be tied up and martyred, what's going to happen to John? Fill me in. Come on. Lay something heavy on him. I mean, I'm willing to die for you, but what about him? And that is when Jesus answers his question with a question. He says, what concern is that of yours? Now I want to stop there because this is, this is really carrying an important truth. Have you ever looked at the way God was using somebody else or how God was blessing somebody else and it just seemed like they were getting more blessed than you, more used than you, or that they were more gifted than you or had more money than you or had this or that or had, had more opportunity than you? Have you ever looked at somebody like that and said, Lord, what about them? Why are you doing this with them? Why aren't they what, experiencing you know, the setbacks that I am or um, the, the, the troubles that I've experienced? Or why does it seem like I'm going through so much more than they are? What about them, Lord? And it's easy in times like that for envy and jealousy to rise up, rear their ugly heads and bring you into a real torment of a real battle. Lord, why? Am I not as blessed as them? Why aren't they going through? Why have you been better and more favorable to them? Because I think that might have been something that was in Peter's question. Why doesn't John have to be martyred? Jesus said, listen, you know what, Peter? It's none of your business. And you know why it's none of your business? Because I don't want you focused on somebody else. I don't want you thinking about somebody else. I don't want you worried about somebody else. I don't want you comparing yourself to somebody else. Because as long as you're focused on somebody else, Peter, you're not going to be focused on what I want you to do. You are Peter. He is John. You are Peter. And I'm not doing with you what I'm doing with John. You know, it snowed last Sunday. And we look out at that beautiful, beautiful snowfall, and we know that every one of those snowflakes are different. Every one of them. If you put 
any one of them under a microscope, they would be shaped differently from the next one. And, and look at the trillions of snowflakes that fall every year, yet every one of them are different in their shape. Isn't God wonderful in his creation? Now, if God can make every snowflake different, he's made every one of us different. Not only in our makeup and the way we look and who we are. Yeah, we're all human, but we're all different. They're all snowflakes, but they're all different. Jesus is saying to Peter, and he says to me and to you, I don't want you to be tormented by what I'm doing with somebody else or always be looking at it. I want you to know that I've got something unique for you and I want you to fulfill my unique, unique calling on your life. And I don't want you so troubled about someone else or so feeling cheated by what I'm doing with someone else that you don't realize I'm blessing you. And what I've called you to do is just as wonderful, though it may be different. And I have not been unfair. In God's kingdom, it's different strokes for different folks. And that's what I see with this quick question. Simon Peter, if I will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? And listen to these words, you follow me. And that's the word to all of us. What's the answer to the question? The, the answer to the question is, it's none of my business, Lord, what you're doing with anyone else. But I will follow your path for me. And I'm going to finish my course. And I'm going to keep the faith. And I'm going to fight a good fight. And I'm going to break the finish tape at the end of my run my journey and what you've done with me. And that's the answer to the question. Well, I hope our questions tonight have blessed you as they have blessed me. I have really enjoyed uh, coming to you tonight.